This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. All right, welcome into the Otzen Audibles podcast. Uh, well, I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopa, Jared Mack on the show as well. And today we are continuing the first ever tradition here for the man Josh Pate of Late Kick of 24-7 Sports. He was in Eugene, so we felt like, hey, first time in Eugene, we need to have you make your first time appearance on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so beaten down by travel. Look at my face. You can't see it. I, I just <laughs> protested turning the camera on, but it was really fun out there, man. It was, it was a scene. I know you guys expected it, but I was talking to some folks in the airport. I think a lot of folks saw Oregon in week one, and they saw what happened against Georgia, and to me – and I think the numbers will bear this out. This is the first time most of the country saw Oregon since week one. And yeah. I can't imagine, I can't imagine a, a bigger shock to the senses after 49 to three than seeing what they just did to UCLA. Those, those don't even look like the same players. It doesn't look like the same team. And yet, you know, you guys have been on the ground every day since then. So it probably wasn't a massive shock to you guys like it was to a lot of the rest of the country. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, I think I was the only one to predict a, a double-digit win, but I think Jared picked a, a cover. Eric was close to a cover. It was almost a push for the final line. But you're right. Like The national perspective of Oregon probably was, oh, my God, who are these guys? This is not the team that we saw. And I think that's a credit to Dan Lanning and uh, the staff to get this team kind of headed in the right direction from week one. But – We'll get to – oh, we just lost Josh. Don't know where Josh went. Josh disappeared. We'll see if he comes back because we were going to ask questions uh, about just his experience at Oregon. And he's back. All right, there we go. There we go. Uh, Josh, before we dive into the game, I want to get your perspective just on your overall experience because I watched your late kick show Sunday night. And if you're not a, a listener or a watcher of that show on this podcast, you need to be go subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's free. Go subscribe to the podcast channel of that. It's free. Um, you had something that I, I said, I thought was perfect. You said, close your eyes. If you're down near the field and just listen to the crowd and you won't realize that you're in a stadium of 60,000, you'll think you're in a stadium of, of I think 90,000. But just what was your overall experience like of Oregon? Because it's there's a lot of hype to this place in Eugene. And when you come, it, it you picked a really good time to, to see it at its peak. Yeah, 
so to give the listeners or viewers who don't know an idea of what we do, we just go to, we pick a game and we go to it every week. So we have full control over where we go. So I'm always at a big game. We're always at your stadium whenever your crowd is fully jacked. I say that because I've seen all these stadiums at not only peak capacity, but, you know, peak energy. So I have a re- I think I have a really good idea, you know, stadium to stadium, how things match up. And a lot of times I've noticed people get really hung up on capacity numbers. And in the yeah. South, where I live and where I grew up, a lot of people would look at Oregon, even when they hear things said positively about Autzen Stadium, and even if they've seen it on TV, they would say, well, how loud can 59 or 60,000 people really be? We've got 90, we've got 95, we've got 100. So when I go out there for the first time, like I did this past weekend, what I value is the overall environment. It doesn't matter if you've got five people or five million people. What can you create? And so the best gauge for that to me is to just close your eyes. Because really, we're talking about creating a sound effect that will impact the opposing team. A capacity number doesn't do that. And we're talking about creating an environment that impresses potential recruits. And a capacity number doesn't do that. An actual experience and environment does. So you might as well close your eyes. You don't need the visual sense in, in that frame of reference to gauge that. And when you close your eyes, it sounds just like Auburn or, or Gainesville or South Carolina. It sounds like one of those places in the South. It sounds like uh, Columbus, Ohio. It sounds like places that you go where the capacity number is a whole lot bigger. And the other thing about it is I, I think that a lot of credit is due. I know you guys are more used to it out there because of the time difference. In the South and out East, it's just like a built-in excuse. If you have a 12 or 12.30 local time kickoff, there's just a built-in excuse. It's going to be a little somber here today, or he's going to be a little muted, and that's why. Well, you don't get to use that excuse out West, obviously, and you deal with those early kickoffs a whole lot more. But it was a 12.30 kickoff out there. Place was primed. Uh, I think UCLA, how many false starts did they have? I mean, they had, they had it, it, was an, it was a factor all day. And I thought that it was a big testament to the crowd out there. I thought they delivered. They had obviously a big unofficial visit weekend. I don't, I don't know how many officials yeah. they had, but it was, it was a huge impact. I loved it. And I kind of expected it, but it was nice to get all of my suspicions validated. Josh, you just talked about kind of a, a fresh experience at Otson. And I know we chatted up in the Otson press box. Good meeting you in person for the first time, by the way. And, and, uh, and one of the things you talked about was how you had had an oper- kind of an extended opportunity to speak with Dan Lanning. You met him in the past briefly before, but you had a, a decent amount of time with him. We, we've had a good amount of time with him. We kind of know him decently. What were your impressions of him in that experience? And, and maybe also just how that carry over to the game where he did make some pretty big kind of, I would say, aggressive calls that I think ended up bearing out for Oregon. Yeah, um, I was there Friday night. And, and got shown around the place and was in Dan's office for a little while, had a really good conversation with him. They were ready to do that. I mean, that was, that was not something that was decided spur of the moment. I can tell you that, uh, that was, that was part of their game plan going in. And they basically twofold, they looked at it as if we can be aggressive tactically, you know, we know we've got the personnel to carry out an aggressive game plan on the field, but also at the same time, when you think aggressive, you know, you think a lot of throwing the ball deep. You think a lot of trickeration. You think a lot of, well, let's let's fake it and go for it on fourth down. And they did the onside kick, so there was that. But to me, when you can marry that conceptually with that 
it seemed like a 50 play drive to start the third quarter and you do it with the run pass ratio that they did and it goes really old school and so you're marrying this advanced more analytical and aggressive style with a 1930s style when you want to pull it out of your bag that's versatility it's multiplicity and you know i was talking to a lot of the folks around the facility i was watching it myself when they talk about what they want to become I think the UCLA game is a great peek into the window of what they want to become. They don't want to be able to put one thing in, in one, like one sentence on one piece of paper and you know, okay, if we can, if we can cross off that one thing Oregon does, we got them. Because there are teams out there like that. Alabama just showed you against Mississippi State. If you take away one thing Mike Leach does, it's the crowbar and the bicycle spokes, they're done. Well, Oregon now has more than just one thing and all of a sudden – I like I said at the beginning, if people watch them for the first time since week one, all of a sudden they look like a team that you have to really take seriously. They're the favorite to win the Pac-12 now, odds wise, but also you just never know what can happen down the road. Not that they're worried about that internally, but I'm sitting here thinking that externally. And I'm also thinking about, you know, how many exciting things are to come. I think everyone expects a wide open transfer portal window. I mean, every coach I talk to says the same thing. There is going to be a wide-open transfer portal window coming up. So anytime you're seeing a program do big things right now, think about it on the field, but then also think about it in recruiting. But then thirdly, think about what you're selling to kids that are already at other programs who may be on the market, some of whom you don't even expect to be on the market. Josh, just want to say thank you for coming on the program. Great to meet you this weekend at Hudson. You on, on Late Kick Live and your Sunday show, you talked about how there were highs and lows of the new hires of this college football season, but you thought that Oregon nailed it. What on Saturday, either at the game or talking to Dan or in the facilities with all the coaching staff, what solidified that idea from you that do you think that Oregon has nailed this hire so far? Well, I think the pieces on the staff fit very well together. You can call that synergy if you want to. I just think that sometimes, especially for a new head coach, who has not put together his own staff before. Sometimes they just, they go hire names, but there's never consideration to how those names fit together. Your coaching staff in a perfect world should look like a finished puzzle and every piece fits with the next piece. That's not always the case. That sounds so easy and simplistic. That's not always the case. In fact, most of the time it's not. That's why most teams don't win at a high level. But at the same time, I don't want to overlook this. Just think back to this last weekend, guys. It, it's one thing to say, oh, Oregon was favored. Oregon won. Move on. Chip Kelly's been doing this a long time. Dan Lanning has not. And they, they sort of outcoached UCLA Saturday. And that's not something that you should just mention and then, and then pass over because <clears throat> you've got a rookie head coach up there. And that, I think, is a testament not just to him. He would be the first probably to tell you, oh, that's my staff. That's the players, but that's the staff. Well, it's the staff he put together. It's the players being put in the position that his plan dictates they get put in. So Dan Lanning does deserve a lot of credit, but that staff does, deserves a lot of credit too. And they got some grinders on that staff. And they got folks who have been at a few places. They've seen it done a few different ways. And the excitement there is, okay, let's take bits and pieces of that. But now we get to do it our way. Early, early returns are their way works. We're not nearly deep enough in to give a final grade or anything like that. But you got to be encouraged, and you know all the while you're just scratching the surface of what Oregon could be. 
Josh, I want to talk a little bit about the Bo Nix of it all. And you've seen him a lot more probably than we have, especially from a prior Oregon perspective. And I know you talked about it on your show Sunday, and I don't want to reiterate the same talking points, but what did maybe we all out West get wrong? Because there was a lot of, I think, uh, skepticism about what Bo could be out here. Obviously, he has put a lot of those questions to rest, especially, I would say, the last three or four games once I've gotten to conference play. What did we get wrong? And, and, and does, has anything he's done really surprised you since he's been out here? Yeah, it has surprised me. But it hasn't surprised me in terms of his skill set. Skill set's always been there. I, you know, I looked at him when he went to Auburn. And that was when Lincoln Riley was at Oklahoma. And I just kind of thought, if he were to go to Oklahoma, he's got a skill set that would land him in the first round of the NFL draft because Lincoln Riley would have developed him. He would have been put in position with great wide receivers around him, and he would have, he would have flourished there. But that's not where he went. He went to Auburn. His dad played at Auburn. Everyone knows that story. Um, Auburn under, Gas, under, under Gus Malzahn never developed a quarterback in-house. The only time they had success was when they took guys from the portal. Or, well, I guess what we call the portal now. But they took transfers, and that's how he won. Jarrett Stidham, transfer. Uh, they had a they had a year in 2013 where they had a transfer from DB that they put at quarterback. Well, Nix came in there, and that was the big talking point when he committed out of high school. Is he going to be able to be developed there? He was not. And he had a very poor offensive line, and he had no wide receivers, and he was he was basically he was like one of those shelter animals. We used to get him all the time when I was a kid, and we would go buy the puppies, and my mom would tell me, you can't be around this dog for a little while. It's scared of people. And there was a good reason for that. Well, when Bo Nix transferred, he wasn't transferring as a one-year player. Here was my concern. My concern was this is so ingrained in him, there is, there's no reversing. There's no untangling this knot. It's going to take too long. And so when I was in the facility Friday night, I was talking to some of their staff at Oregon. And they said, you know, it really wasn't that. All we had to get him to do is just don't run backwards every play. Because that's what's on film. That's what he does. He sees ghosts from, from Auburn. And I understand why. I mean, he was under constant duress. He was under assault down there. Well, that's not the case now. You can protect him. He's got, he's got weapons around him. He can dump the ball off. It's not him versus the world. And now that you've gotten that out of his system, and now you, that you've got the ability to develop him, you've got an offensive coordinator who knows him, and most importantly, you've got players around him, that's what Bo Nix was always capable of. So this is not a revelation in terms of his skill set. It's just, it's a new day in terms of him actually fulfilling that potential. He just put himself so far behind the eight ball early in his career at Auburn that it took until now to see it. Josh, I just, you know, there's so many great things that came out of Oregon's victory over UCLA and, and the atmosphere of the game itself, um, how Oregon has bounced back from that week one Georgia loss. I just want to pick your brain about what do you think some of the concerns are for this team going forward and um, more so as the team and then potentially down the line with the staff or, or something in that manner? Well, UCLA didn't punt Saturday. So if I were to tell you that Friday, I think you would have. Yeah. I think everyone on this show would have banked on the fact that you just whiffed on your prediction. I would be among you. Mm -hmm. So all four of us would be feeling that. And yet Oregon still found a way to win and win comfortably. But at the same time, they're not a finished product defensively. Um, and I think I, I, Dan Lanning knows that. I mean, he didn't even let people finish their question hardly in the postgame presser before he said essentially that. Um, 
I'm interested moving forward. You got who you have this year, but I'm interested moving forward. What kind of, what kind of athlete and what kind of depth? Let me let me say it like this: What kind of depth and versatility through recruiting they can manage to develop in their defensive front? Because in a perfect world, you can be multiple there, and in a perfect world, you've got the kind of body types and skill sets that transition where you can face wide open offenses one week and a really, really physical box team the next week. And that's not always been the case out West. It's hard enough to do that when you recruit in the South. And so it's, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. But at the same time, a lot of the excitement around there, as I said, is born in recruiting and believing in their vision, but also the portal world is a different world. You, you can get players in the portal or out of the portal, I guess, using different techniques than in high school in high school some of the dumbest stuff in the world matters it's just it's just the way of the world i mean there's a reason why that throne sits in their equipment room it's not because that makes you a better player it's just because that's what impresses a high school kid and it's dumb but you do it well when guys have already been on campus a year or two that stuff's kind of filtered out they're down to business and so if they're going to be on the move they're caring about the right things at that point and I think Oregon's got the right things. And so when I'm telling you I wonder what kind of depth and versatility they can build in different position groups, I'm sort of thinking about the portal and thinking about which kind of players they can add in that avenue. I think it's going to be the big story. No one's talking about it right now because we're in the season, but I think it's going to be the big story come December and January, and I think Oregon's going to be a player there. And by the way, I, I think you guys have probably already done this, but you could do a little exercise where – you look at the few they brought in, and they're virtually all contributing, and you can look at some of the ones who left. And I, we're, we're far enough in the season right now where I, you can say, I think some guys made some very poor decisions. It is what it is. It's their choice. But there are some guys who could be contributing on this team that, that weren't character concerns or anything. They just got out of Dodge because they didn't know what the future held, and it's sort of two sides to that portal coin. All right, Josh, we'll, we'll end it with this. We'll get you out of here. Uh, big picture perspective of just Oregon um, for the rest of this season. I, I They're in this weird po- position where if they run the table, they're going to be favored in every game on their schedule. All their tough games are at home. Washington at home, Utah at home. Uh, their toughest road game is probably Oregon State, which should be a challenge. It's a rivalry game, but Oregon on paper is just drastically better. Uh, than the Beavers. Um, Get to the Pac-12 championship game. Maybe they face USC. Maybe it's a rematch against UCLA. They should be favored in that game, I think. If if they win out and they're 12-1 and and they're Pac-12 champions, uh, that's hard to to say, you know, you don't know what happened week one, that they, they should make the playoff. But when you look at week one, I have a hard time saying they should make the playoff when you get drubbed 49 to three. I I think this is going to be a fascinating exercise. If Oregon runs the table to, to how the playoff committee handles this team, because they're 12 and one, but the one loss that they lost, you know, the game that they lost, they got embarrassed and that that's hard to put into the playoff. It's hard. It's not impossible to me. I, I can look at it this way because I'm not sitting out there as an Oregon fan. I can tell you I think it's going to be a winning scenario regardless. If you make the playoff, you make the playoff. That's that's descriptive enough. If you barely miss out on the playoff, it just provides fuel for next year, and you let guys know you got to take it serious from the opening gun. 
You can't, this is not preseason. You can't afford to give away any games early. Also, if they falter down the stretch, you've got the teaching point of you got really, really high off of folks telling you how good you were. You can't be patting yourself on the back. You got to finish the drill. So whatever happens here, it's going to be able to turn into a positive for Dan Lanning and his staff. But what they need to root for, and I think if you want to make the playoff, obviously you're rooting for Georgia. It would greatly help your cause if the team you got blown out by was the number one seed. I think they need USC to be in that Pac-12 championship game because if they're playing someone there, you need someone the committee respects and thinks highly of, and it doesn't matter what's under the USC helmet. If you put that helmet on the field, you'll get the committee's respect. And then number three, you mentioned Washington. You mentioned Utah. Those are two more high-profile opportunities, and I think of the Oregon State game as high-profile. I don't know how much the rest of the country feels that way, but you guys have watched them. You know they're a good football team. They've got opportunities. So it's not like you just saw them and now they're going to coast off the radar and the next time you see them is conference championship Friday. So they're going to be there. It, it's the same way with Clemson right now. It's the same way with a lot of these teams. You just wait. you got to see how everything shakes out. And that's out of your hands if you're Oregon. But if you just control what you can control, they're going to be in a good position regardless. Josh, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully we see you back in Eugene at some point, maybe, maybe next season. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you could make a surprise trip to Utah. I don't know, but I don't want to put that pressure on it, but Hey, I hope to see you back in Eugene. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. I appreciate it guys. And I appreciate everyone out there. We got treated great this week. It felt like we were home and we were 3000 miles away from home. So big thanks to everyone in Eugene. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thanks for Josh Pate for coming on the show. 
talking it up with uh, us three fellows here. And uh, make sure to subscribe to his YouTube page, uh, Late Kick 24-7 Sports. Also subscribe to the podcast as well. Very informative, very in-tune person right there. Good human being, uh, Josh Pate. All right, guys, let's flip the script. Mailbag time. Uh, we're still going to do the mailbag. We've got a couple questions. And it was very hard to find some questions that we wanted to use, not because of the the scarcity of questions, but because uh, we had a lot to to, to divulge from. We had a lot to pick from, which is great. It means there's interest. Um, The show is flourishing. I was, we're messaging on on Sunday morning, right? When I kind of woke up looking at the numbers from the pod we put up the night before, and we were kind of like, holy, which word do I say here? Holy cow, I guess, is what I, th- I think I'm saying now, but we, maybe I used a different word in the Slack channel. Um, just because the, the numbers were really, really encouraging. A lot of people were, I think, excited, fired up about this one, as they should be. So we got, I think, a good selection of questions. Again, fun to see some, some new names on the show here. Um, we're going to do three here on the back half. I know usually we do five, but maybe we'll get a couple extra a week from now. We just thought, hey, we're going to get Josh paid on the show. We want to give the guy a good full segment. So... First one from at fish econ, hashtag odds and audibles. To what degree is the outstanding production of the offensive line a legacy of the previous staff? And is this a level that the Ducks can reasonably hope to achieve in future seasons? I thought this was a good place to start because the offensive line is performing, I would argue, better than any offensive line I can think of at Oregon in a very long time in terms of just the totality of what they're accomplishing on the field. I'm not saying it has the same top tier talent. We've been over this. There's no penny still on this line, but you've got five guys that are working and playing at a very, very high level. There are still the, uh, you know, uh, pre-snap issues every now and then Matt and I kind of talking at the game of like, it seems like Forsyth has something wrong happened with a pre-snap kind of a snap issue almost every week now, which is a little bit concerning, but I don't think that concerning. And I think once the ball is snapped, they win basically every down. They hardly ever give up any pressures. They provide massive run lanes for whoever is carrying the football. And it's a group I think you feel very, very comfortable with. So to the first question about the legacy of the previous staff, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Mario Cristobal and Alex Mirabal for this. Um, obviously, we'll get to some, you know, Adrian Clem's done a fantastic job. This group is playing better than it did under those two, I think, notably. Um, that could be seasoning of the experience. It could be, um, I know in the spring and in the fall, they talked about there was a lot of technical changes in terms of the aggression here. They are more aggressive right now than they were under the previous staff in terms of stepping towards the defensive players as opposed to stepping back on pass downs. Some different things with the handwork. I'm not an offensive line guru by any means, but there were some really um, instructive comments made by both Ryan Walk, Alex Force, I think even TJ Bass, uh, kind of about some of the te- like actual technical changes yeah. of what they're doing. I think that gets overlooked in offensive line play, and I'm the wrong person to try to like break it all down. I'm sure Jeff Schwartz, if we ever got him as a guest, would be a really if, that could be very informative of like what are they actually doing differently because they made it very clear there was a lot they're doing differently. So mm-hmm. Glenn deserves a lot of credit for some of that stuff, but I think you have to give a lot of credit to the previous staff for recruiting this group, for buying in with this group, and for the development that they had, even if it was different in terms of kind of the system that they were operating under. 
because this is a group that has been together now for about three full seasons, and it shows. And I think you can legitimately argue this is undoubtedly the best group in the Pac-12. I think the stats bear it out. And I think you can look at the country here, and I'm not again, I'm not saying same top-tier talent, but just a group that's performing within an offense. It is meeting expectations and is up there, I think, nationally. And I don't know if there's going to be any All-Americans on this team, but this is a group that to me feels like should have, I think, national consideration um, in terms of just kind of being one of the best units in the country. I know you listen to some of the national podcasts. They're taking notice. I know Bruce Feldman shouted this group out on the Audible podcast a couple of days ago that I was listening to um, and so on and so forth. So um, there's kind of my answer to the legacy part. I'll let you guys answer the second question about kind of future achievement. Sure. I think this is sustainable. I think you mentioned how Adrian Clem has done a good job and he's taken um, these players who Mario Cristobal left. And to briefly answer the first one, I think a lot of it does have to go or the first question. A lot of it does have to go to Mario Cristobal and Alex Mirabal, two of the best offensive line guys probably in the country. You look at like Brian Walk and Alex Forsyth um, and their their ability to find these guys like TJ Bass. I know he was pretty highly rated as a Juco recruit. And then Sala was, I think, the best, if not the second best Juco recruit in the country. They just had an eye for this. And they would like Feobe Lalu, I think, would be a good player if he if he was if he if he started for Oregon, I think they'd be okay. They've done a good job developing talent. But I think overall that can continue with Adrian Clem. Uh, I think that his NFL experience is extremely undervalued, especially at the offensive line position. Um, his new techniques, and like Eric said, I can't tell you what, what exactly they mean or what exactly they are or how exactly they help. Um, another part in this, and maybe we'll get to this question later in the podcast, but this offense provides an opportunity for Oregon's offensive line to show their strength, but also not really put a lot of pressure on them because – they're able to do a lot of quick throws and a lot of throws behind the line and bubble screens and stuff like that, where it's not about holding up against a pass rush like UCLA that often. They do it and they do it well, absolutely. But in a hypothetical world, if this wasn't as great of an offensive line, um, I still think the sack numbers would be relatively low just because of how they play. And I'm not saying this is a detriment to the offense or anything like that. I'm saying it's, it's good offensive play calling by Kenny Dillingham where you know, he's able to get his guys, his athletic offensive linemen in the open field and protect the quarterback and not let him just sit back in the pocket. Um, Eric, you were like, you were talking about comparing this offensive line to former offensive lines. I still think the 2019 one was probably a higher ceiling, but the offense then was more stagnant. They weren't getting guys in motion. They weren't using players. There were opportunities for a defensive line to just go right at them and kind of and go and attack Justin Herbert, unlike how they use Bo Nix in this offensive line. So I think for future value, I think it can absolutely maintain maybe not this level of talent and this elite offensive line play because it's really hard to do that on a, on a given year and, and especially even consistently. But I think a, the offensive line should and could remain a, a, a huge strength of Oregon's overall offense and one of the better groups on the team? I think the answer to these questions are probably both. Uh, you have to credit Mario Cristobal and Mirabal for the talent acquisition of the players on hand, but you have to credit Adrian Clem, the offensive line coach currently, and Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator, uh, for maybe – 
putting this talent in better places to succeed because Oregon's 2022 offense, their yards per carry ranks second in the country. Mario Cristobal never had a top 10 uh, offense that had, you know, that, that fit into that top 10. Um, the last season, they were 13th in the country in yards per carry. The last time Oregon was in the top 10 was in 2015, which was under Mark, which was under Mark Helfrich. Uh, and the last time that Oregon had an offense that was ranked higher came in 2012 when they led the country under Chip Kelly uh, with 5.97 yards per carry. I, I agree with Jared that the 2019 offense is probably offensive line is probably better than this one, but they weren't max maximizing the efficiency of that unit. Um, right. 38th in the country, 4.8 yards per carry. So I, I think some of the offense matters here, but they're running. I, I think the talent matters here. I think some fine tuning matters here. And to answer the second part of the question, the longevity of this, I think we've seen that this staff can recruit offensive linemen, getting Josh Connerly, getting Dave Uly last class. Connerly plays this season. You know Jackson Powers Johnson will be here next year. He's a big piece of this team. We know Marcus Harper will be here. He's a big piece of this team currently. Stephen Jones has an opportunity to come back. And while we don't want to speak for his future, if he has aspirations of making it to the NFL, probably should come back um, based off of that. So the pieces are going to be in place at least short-term wise for this to continue. And as recruiting shows, it should only get better or should only maintain the level of talent that they have. And I think the offense that they, if they run plays into this as well. So as long as they're running a modern day version of college football's offense, and as long as the recruiting continues to go, as we've seen it, I think it's, it's fair to say that this offensive line should continue to be pretty darn good. Is it fair to say, hey, they should be second in the country every single year in yards per carry or rushing yards? No. Or pass protection? No. But I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable expectation to say every single season, this unit should be one of the best 25 units in the country, whether it's pass protection, run blocking, and combined. And I think on the low end, you're in the 20, you're in the 20 range. And on the high end, you're probably in the top 10. Yeah, I think important distinction there at the end, Matt, that you've made that I was going to just kind of conclude this conversation of, you know, future seasons. I don't want to set the expectation that next year's offensive line, which could lose four starters I mean, yeah. and five quasi with Stephen Jones, if he were to, because he could leave as well. Um, I think I consider Harper now to be somebody who has starting experience. I think Jackson Powers Johnson is basically a pseudo starter. He played a lot this last game. He's played a lot most of the games this season. I bet he's played 20, 25 snaps basically every week. Um, and, and he's he's in that 14J package every time they take Ryan Walkout for that. Um, so my, my, my point remains that, like, I think a big part of this group is the seasoning, is the experience, is the Alex Forsythe. I mentioned some of the snap stuff. I think he is ultra important to everything that's going on up front. It's going to be difficult to replace him. I think Jackson Powers Johnson eventually will be somebody who can play at a similar level, but it won't be your one. So I think the ground – Groundwork is laid. The offense is, as Jared and, and you both, I think, outlined pretty well, is favorable to offensive line play. You've got a coach, a head coach that, um, and an offensive coordinator that really understand kind of 
the cohesion required for an offense and, and kind of playing to strengths. And I think they'll continue to do that. Um, but I do think you have to expect at least somewhat of a dip next year. You lose a lot of good yeah. players, a lot of right, players, yeah, yeah. players that have played a lot of snaps. And so to expect it to remain one of the best, whatever you want to call it, six units, eight units, I don't know. I'd have to actually go and rank the units to be able to actually say where they fit in. But whatever you want to call it, a great unit, I think you're going to probably – you should expect it to take a step down a bit next year just because of what you're losing. But the baseline should be that this is a great offensive line team year in and year out. And some of that's going to depend upon continued talent acquisition, which at least through the first recruiting class last year, getting Connerly, is off to a really good start. All right, next one from at Donovan JM. Hashtag and Audibles. Talk to me about third and fourth down defense. Is it as bad as it seems? It's really frustrating me. Um, I think this question from Donovan is probably uh, echoing what a lot of Oregon fans are feeling right now. You know, I'm doing my game grades, just kind of started doing those right before we, we got on here. I'm going to give a lot of really favorable offensive grades. Some of the defensive grades won't be very favorable because they just have a really hard time consistently getting off the field. Um, I actually thought they were decent on third down for the most part against UCLA. I mean, six of 12 isn't great, but they did force a couple field goals. Um, but UCLA never had a drive end in their, uh, you know, before the 50 yard line. They were never able to get off the field there. And as Dan said, it was a sort of a frustrating circumstance of even when they did win on some of those third downs, not winning on fourth. And UCLA's ability to convert several of those on short intermediate routes. And um, I did, I mean, you have to acknowledge some wins again. There was some positive play, but I do think it's probably the biggest concern. On, well, just this is a, a broad and an obvious point. The biggest concern with this team right now is defense. And, and, and no one would suggest otherwise. And I think more narrowly, I, I do feel like third down defense concerns me right now. Um, Oregon gives up a lot of sustained scoring drives. It's better when you're able to hold the field goals like they did against UCLA, but it's definitely not good enough. And to me, it comes down to all three units, really. Um, UCLA is a bit of a outlier, I think, because they were able to run the ball really effectively. They have Zach Charbonnet. They have a good offensive line. That set them up in a lot of third and manageables. When you get into third down and six and seven, I get nervous because a lot of the passes are into areas where you've got linebackers in coverage. And we've talked about this. I, I know it's, it's interesting reading message boards where people think the defensive problems are kind of stem from. I'm still big on Oregon pretty good up front. I actually think their yeah. secondary is playing actually played really well pretty the well weeks. the last month or so. Oregon's linebackers are a problem. They're not very good yep. um, and haven't been playing very good, especially on pass downs. You think about – the first UCLA touchdown, Justin Flo just a step slow to react and then a step slow to get there. Noah Sewell is also typically a step slow. The Jake Bobo touchdown at the end there, I don't think that's entirely Sewell's fault because he's kind of coming over from a zone trying to play help defense of knocking it down. But right. that's still a play. If he makes it, there's no score there. I just think they are – that's a real issue. And um, I think – you want to get you, you want to couple that with a little better pass rush of, of, of making those throws diff, more difficult. But DTR had a lot of time, and he had the ability to pick and choose where he threw the football. And I thought Oregon's corners played pretty admirably, 
in terms of contesting the ball. I thought Brian Addison played really, really well on rewatch. He did. He made a ton of plays. I didn't think that Oregon's linebackers played very well. And so not to con continue to beat that dead horse, but to me, a lot of the issues on all three downs, four downs, if a team goes for it, are linebacker related. And you just kind of hope, again, we talked about the importance of these next two weeks of kind of shoring up weaknesses. You hope these are games where you're able to get a little bit better play from from these guys in the middle there. Because I, I just am continue to feel like that's sort of the weak spot, which, again, is surprising, but probably – maybe you shouldn't be considering some of the health stuff you're dealing with as well. Yeah. To, to answer Donovan JM's question, uh, is it as bad as it seems? The answer is yes. Um, they're 129th <laughs> in the country out of 131 programs for third down conversion percentages of defense. They're allowing 50.5%. So obviously one and two, which is not good compared to, uh, Ohio State ranks second, and they're uh, allowing third down conversions at a 24.5% rate, one in four. So pretty simple, um, pretty simple arithmetic, which is all we can do on this program, that's for sure. But it's the linebackers. Um, you watch that game against UCLA, and like Eric and I were just, literally just talking about the secondary, I thought, played pretty well. When Dorian Thompson Robinson took a shot down the field, anything over 10 to 15 yards, um, there was usually a guy there, or at least a man in coverage, and or in a quick tackle that was wrapped up. You know, there was the one play that Eric mentioned, the flow touchdown. That was the longest play of the game through the air, and it was, you know, a three-yard pass. It was just someone being faster than the other person. The longest pass play was the Jake Bobo one for 28 yards, and that was just a tremendous catch. There's a huge, there's a much higher possibility of him dropping that than making a catch. So I think defensively, it's the linebackers in space and moving east to west. I know whoever's been listening to this podcast for the last month, two months at this point, is probably really frustrated with how often I say east to west, but those are the problems. If you look at UCLA's conversions on Saturday, one for three on third and long, of, and they considered long being nine plus yards, but they're four for four on third and short, so under four, under three yards, under four yards, under under four yards. That makes sense. I mean, again, this is under four yards is something you can run for, and they have one of the best running backs in the conference and a, and a very good offensive line. So that's another issue that Oregon had to deal with. But when UCLA needed six to seven yards on a third down. It was just right where the linebackers are. It was either moving them east to west or finding a hole in this in the zone coverage that they were playing. Uh, Chip Kelly did a, it did a really good job of taking advantage of Oregon's linebacking uh, uh, abilities and, and their coverage abilities as well. It's just not it's just not there. And I think Dan and then the defense have improved on it. I would say because it was really porous to start the season, but. It's a well-known commodity that this is an issue. But thankfully for Oregon, the secondary and, and the safeties and the cornerbacks have really stepped up their game to the point where teams can really only go underneath. Um, this third down issue is is becoming a bit of a, a bit of a problem here at Oregon for the last two years. I think we all remember how if any team last season in 2021, if they had a third and seven or longer, boom, slant route. That's all you needed to do against Tim DeRuiter's defense last year with their linebacking coverage. And those are beginning to be the same problems in this season or are continuing to be problems in this season. Not as many slant routes, which is nice, but 
again, a lot of teams just going right at the linebackers on third and long. Two things. Um, I agree that it's a concern, but since I'll, I'll play the maybe half glass full type role to this answer, um, the offenses that they've faced are pretty damn good. Um, you look at the schedule, the teams that they've played, you then go and you look at the yards per play from an offensive perspective, teams that are the most efficient per play on offense. They've played number four in the country, Georgia. They've played number eight in the country, UCLA. They've played number 25 in the country, BYU. And they've played number 26 in the country, Arizona. Still on the schedule, they have number 18, Utah. They have number, where's Washington? I just saw them up here. Number 21, Washington. USC is 11th in the country. And Oregon State is 28th, just outside that top 25. So they're playing really good offenses. Um, if you want to look at from a half-glass type full perspective, they're playing some of the best offenses in the country. You're not going to be able to completely shut them down every single time like we saw against Stanford or like we saw um, against Eastern Washington. Now, to your guys' point, yes, the linebackers are not very good, and that is a concern. Now, I will say, I think the linebackers are really good against the run, but the problem is they don't have a lot of guys that are really good against the pass. It feels like it's Jeffrey Bossa, and that's it. And I don't even know if Jeffrey Bossa is even playing that good right now. He's, um, he's, no, he's, no. he's having a hard time, too. Yeah. Yeah, and it, going into the year, that was kind of – the expectation of, hey, we can pair Bossa with Sewell, we can pair Bossa with Flo, because on paper, his skill set was going to be defending the pass. He's good against the run, but he's better against the pass. While Sewell and Flo were better against the run, not very good against the pass. And so the problem was, is he was really the only one that you looked at and said, hey, he's, he's our guy in coverage at linebacker, and he's not playing at a good level either. So there's just, there isn't a lot of options. And I think you look at recruiting, you look at this, maybe a portal area here. You you go and you hit the portal in the off season, add one, maybe two guys that are linebacker type players that can do some damage in pass protection. Because while in the SEC or in the big 10, there's a lot of teams that run the football effectively and do it at a high level. The PAC 12, the offenses are, are kind of, I don't want to say similar to the Big 12 air raid type stuff, but everyone chucks the ball around in the conference. And you need to be able to have some guys that can defend the pass at the linebacker spot. And I just don't think they don't have anybody really at that spot right now. Um, they're good against the run, but the problem is the teams that they're playing, they don't run the football consistently. They, they are aired out type offenses. And just, just, to, uh, just to put it in perspective here, and I know we've we've argued on and off the podcast how reputable are these PFF grades. Um, currently, the PFF grades and coverage for Oregon's primary linebackers, Justin Flo, is the worst, thirty-eight, which is just a terrible, which is a very bad grade. Jeffrey Boss is not much better at forty-three. Sewell's actually considerably better than both of them at about fifty-nine. Um, yeah, he's but, been the best coverage linebacker of guys who really play. Which is, yeah, and, you know, you know you, so you look at this and you just kind of go like, you basically, and, you know, those grades, anything under 60, it's not great. 
um, by PFF standards. Like the top, the top coverage players in Oregon's team are, are currently um, Brian Addison. He's about 82. Christian Gonzalez, 75. Tri Quez is actually 71. Dante Manning is 71. Um, these guys over 70, over 80 in the 75 range. That's like, that's very, very solid. That puts you in kind of the, you know, the top 30, top 25 percentile of college football coverage players being in the lower range. Like we're talking about is like, these are, these are considered some of the worst coverage linebackers nationally in that range um, by PFF standards. So that's a point of emphasis, something to consider, something to work on. I'm curious on the, on the player acquisition part, how much of a focus that will be. I think we expect Noah Sewell not to make this a long-term 2023 and beyond question because it wasn't, but um, I think we all expect Noah Sewell to, to be gone after this year, I think Justin Flo should come back. I don't really see what he's done this season yeah. to really, to really, uh, you know. I think he needs to put a full season in of being playing at a really high level. I hope to God he plays really awesome down the stretch and gives himself a chance to go pro and, and be drafted high. I just think if he were to, to put his name out there now, I think there's some concerns. Um, he's had some really nice moments. He's also had some moments where it hasn't been pretty. Matt, do we have do we have time for another one? Do you want to do? The yeah, we got one? one more. All we right, got, we, we got, got time. We were debating before the show if we were going to do two or three on the back end here. We're going to do the third from at Robbie Parness, who is a pretty frequent question asker. Uh, this one is, what worries you more right now, a letdown game at Cal or losing Kenny Dillingham to a head coaching gig after the season? Hashtag thoughts and audibles. Um, did you guys watch the Cal-Washington game? Uh, yes. I don't know why I was, but I should have been in bed, but Yes. <laughs> I came away thinking neither of those teams are all that good. No. And Cal offensively actually was a little bit more frisky despite being kind of ugly while doing it. Like they completed some pretty high degree of difficulty passes. All in all, though, really not sure I'm that concerned about losing to Cal. Uh, I think Oregon's significantly better than Cal. Cal plays Oregon really tough, though. And I think that's a thing we have to kind of discuss and kind of recognize this week. I think the expectation should be Oregon wins by a lot of points. I think they will win this game. And possibly a lot of points, but Cal's like a team that just kind of hangs around. Like, not a lot of teams just beat the crap out of Cal. Notre Dame, Washington, decent teams. They were within a score. Um, I think Oregon is significantly better. I think they'll win that game. I'm not expecting a letdown. I think from what we've seen so far this year, it seems like the staff is really good at keeping people kind of focused. I am definitely more concerned about the Dillingham thing. Um, just in terms of the long-term nature of this, I don't know if he will leave. I don't know. Like, I think that's kind of getting into to, to, to crazy discussion points here of, of like hypothesizing if it'll happen. But the Arizona State job is open. He has ties there. The Auburn job might be open. He obviously has ties there. Those are two positions that are, as a head coach, worth considering, I think, especially as somebody who obviously wants to be a head coach. Um Here's the here's a here's a take I had that I texted a friend of mine, and let me know if this is crazy. I've been waiting for this. Could you argue to hear this scope will take? Well, could you could you argue Kenny Dillingham is the most valuable coaching asset on Oregon staff, including Dan Lynn? That is a hot take. That is scorching, actually. What do you think about that? Um and that's no disrespect to Dan Lanning. No, I no, think, no, I, yeah, yeah. I, I just totally think Dillingham's understand. really, really good play caller. My here's the one thing that eventually I was going to get to in my answer to this. I guess I'll answer it now. 
Kenny is, has, it looks amazing. It looks wonderful. He's only done this for a year. And I think that's the one knock on him. So like, if you're Auburn, if you're, if you're Auburn, if you're Arizona state, it doesn't matter who you hire, but if you're Auburn, it really does matter who you hire this time around because you totally whiffed on Harson. If you're Auburn and you're looking at that Kenny Dillingham, I think that's the one thing that kind of gives you pause. It's like, okay, he's an offensive coordinator at Oregon. He does, he's doing really, really well. This offense and hyperdrive, um, also, it'd be kind of weird if he went there because he's like doing really well with Auburn's former quarterback. Anyways, I think it, I think that's the one thing that that kind of is a ding on Kenny's resume, and it's such a small thing. But I think that's a, a very interesting question, Eric, because this college football now is all about offense, and you look at some of the good hires that teams have made in the last couple of seasons and getting getting coaches away. You know, like the Lincoln Rileys of the world. It's it's usually offense, although there has been a little bit more of a propensity to, to hire a defensive-minded coach like Lanning or Marcus Freeman or uh, Brent Venables. But offense is still the name of the game, and that's what's going to get somebody hired. Um, I wouldn't all of that be surprised if Dillingham actually uh, has gets a call from an NFL team, not for a head coaching position, but like a Joe Brady offensive coordinator just shooting up through the ranks because of how good his offenses are. Um, I think there's a better chance that Dillingham is gone week uh, after this season than Oregon losing to Cal. Um, how do we define a letdown game, though? Because Losing. Okay, so – if they went and they beat Cal like twenty-seven to fourteen, would that be a letdown? I mean, the, the line o- the line opened at like twelve offshore, which is really low for what I was expecting. But if they won by twelve, I think everyone would be disappointed. The history in this series, though, is like these games are just always close. Right is my I agree. Only, is my only pushback to like, would it be a letdown if they win? Like Oregon, I'm just pulling up the the the, the history here. Um, like the last three games that these teams have played have all been decided by 10 p- points or, or fewer. Um, Oregon's won two. They lost the one in 2020, which was just a dreadful game. Yes. And like, and, and, then, and then they did drub them pretty good in 18 and 17. 16, Cal won. I'm not going to go through the entire thing here, but Cal has just a way of playing games close and making muddying the game, which is maybe why you feel like Cal's defense, which isn't a world beater this year, they want to play in the 20s. Like Oregon's offense is like scoring like in the 50s, basically mid 40s to 50s now every week. And maybe it shouldn't be close, but um, yeah, I get your point, Matt. Of like, if it's a two score game, is that a letdown? Probably. Most people will say this. Um, and Cal has only the, the most points they've allowed this season is 31 in a win against Arizona. Um, so yeah, the, they don't allow a lot of points. They are methodical and slowing the game down, limiting the possessions. Washington, which is one of the best offenses in the country, just put up 28 uh, in mm-hmm. that seven-point win. Um, so I would be I would be more concerned about losing Dillingham. Um, Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports recruiting editor, he was at the game for UCLA, and he and I were talking about him pregame, and we kind of both agreed, like, What's obviously the connection here is ASU. Like that's what people are probably worried most about because that's the area he's from. That's the area where his wife is from. He went to school at ASU. He was a GA at ASU. 
um, they have an opening currently. And we both though said like that job will be open again in four or five years. It's always a, a, a churning job. It, it, it doesn't have any longevity. You know, when's the last time we've seen a coach stay at ASU beyond six seasons? Um, I can't think of one. Todd Graham. Um, did, did, wasn't Todd Graham there longer than that? I'll, look, I'll pull it up. Keep talking. Sorry. But the, the, the whole point that he and I both agreed was, is like you could get that job in three or four years. And why go now? Especially when they're going to be on sanctions. They're going to have – it's going to be a full rebuild. And so wait for the first guy to go in and kind of get things back on stable ground. And, you know, he'll probably move on at some point in the next couple of seasons. You're only 31. You can still get the job when you're 38, 37 years old. And you don't have to deal with the sanctions. You don't have to deal with the scholarship limits if there's going to be any of that. And you can just continue to build it forward. Whereas if he goes now and it doesn't work out, He's not going to get. He's not going to land at a, a power five head coaching job again because he's going to have to go back to being a coordinator, and then he's probably going to have to go take a group of five head coaching job to show that he's ready for a power five opportunity again. So I, I think if if I'm if I'm Kenny Dillingham, I look at my good friend and the guy in charge of the Oregon program, Dan Lanning, and look at his path. And say, okay, wait for a top 15 job in the country to open up. Be the coordinator for a couple of years, even if you have to turn down a couple of head coaching jobs at group of five schools or lower levels and go. Um, I guess the really long answer to this is I'm very confident Oregon's going to win and they're going to look really good against Cal. Uh, and so I'm picking the other option. I just did the uh... – the coaching history at Arizona State, no, you, uh, Graham was there six years, so there's your six years. And let me go back here. Um, this is pretty wild to look through because there is some truth to this. You had Frank Cush from 1958 to 1979. That's a 20, as, as we all remember. I mean, we all remember very vividly the Frank Cush era at Arizona the State. <laughs> um, I'm sure Arizona State fans absolutely do, but the three of us were not born and don't remember much about Arizona State football from there, even if we were probably. Um, since him, they've had uh, – nobody's lasted more than six years besides one guy. And we had a, a four-year stint with Daryl Rogers in the early 80s. John Cooper had a couple of years in the late 80s. Larry Marmy had a couple of years in the 80s and 90s. Bruce Snyder had eight years from 92 to, to 2000. Then Dirk Cutter had five years. Dennis Erickson had five years. Uh, Todd Graham had six years. And then Herm Edwards most recently was here for five years. So, yeah, it's about a, it's about a, you get about five, six years every time is, is kind of the, the thing. So if the job's open in, for 2023, you can probably expect it to open in 2028, Kenny. I think with Kenny, real quick, if he stays at Oregon and just keeps balling and just keeps showing off, he's going to have way better offers than Arizona State. Absolutely. And yes. Like, he just needs to – like, if if that's what he wants to do, um, instead of taking a Power 5 job – or not a Power 5 job, like a Group of 5 job or a lower-level school where they're probably just going to pay you the same amount of money that Oregon's going to pay you because as long as Oregon does well with the football program, they're going to get more money and, they, and clearly he needs to be paid. If he waits around a couple of years, teams – way above Arizona State are going to come calling. And Just play devil's advocate, though, 
Jared, because I, I, I actually probably agree. But there is also the fact that, as you pointed to, I think the question now is is he doesn't have a whole lot of experience as an offensive coordinator. Should he really be deserving of a head coaching job? Wouldn't there be some benefit of getting head coaching experience at even at Arizona State to kind of put that on his resume before taking like a – I think ultimately he's someone who could yeah, be like I – mean, I think he's someone who could ultimately be like the head coach at like Notre Dame or, you know what I mean, like a big, big school. That is a big, big school. I just threw I just threw a big school that, you know, you kind of – Are you saying Marcus Freeman is on the hot seat? Not now. I'm saying <laughs> you're talking about three you're to four recording years. recording this? Are you, you're saying three to four years down the line, though. Three to four years down the line, maybe. I mean, it's not going yeah. great. It's been a rough start. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just throwing out a school that, like, is, is pretty prominent that might have coaching turnover in that three to four-year range. Like, could be – that could be a that could be a school. It could be a Southern Florida school, too. I don't know. Could be. Um, yeah, Miami. I, I, well, there Thank you go. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That, I, that, that, that was just a thought. Just kind of like, you know, you talk about the lack of offensive coordinating play calling experience. Maybe there's some benefit of being a play caller while also being a head coach. I mean, I think he's going to continue to be a play caller wherever he goes because that's what makes right. him special. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. He'll be fine. I promise. He's going to make a lot of money coaching football. I guarantee yeah, that. He'll, and I, He'll be good. And he's, and he's a good dude. So we all, we, would, Kenny, if you're listening, we'd like to talk to you at one point, though. That's our one issue. <laughs> we, we do talk to him. We get about eight words on a Tuesday, Wednesday's practice while he walks in. Anyway, Matt, mm-hmm. do you have one more thought before we wrap up? Yeah, real quick. It's a yes or no answer from you guys. If you can expand on it, you want to, that's fine. Should Oregon redo his deal? and give him $2 million or more dollars to be the offensive coordinator to ensure that he's here at Oregon for the next four years. Call it the Dante Moore deal. Yes. If you can guarantee he's here for four years, yes. Absolutely. Because the thing that makes this team, and this is the reason I made the point about the, best, the most important coaching asset might be Kenny Dillingham on staff, to me, and I'm not trying to overlook everybody else, I think is a really good staff. And I think Dan Lanning is a really good head coach. But to me, what's made this team so good is its offense. And, and, and in large part, the creativity of its offensive coordinator and play caller. And if you can keep this guy around, you should open up the pocketbook to make sure that happens. I'm not saying that if he leaves after this year, Oregon suddenly has a stinky offense and, and Dan Lanning has a bad tenure here. But I think the longer you have a really good offensive coordinator, that is proving to be a really good offensive coordinator, the more successful you're going to be. So absolutely. And you also, you brought up the Dante Moore of it all. That's a big-time recruit that committed here in large part because of Kenny Dillingham. If Kenny Dillingham takes off, does he look around and do you lose your five-star quarterback recruit? I think that also needs to be included in the Dante or in the Kenny Dillingham kind of part of the discussion here. Uh, Yes. Pay the man. I agree. Yes, it's time. It, I think it's money well spent to extend him right now and ensure that he's here for a couple more seasons. All right, it's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back later this week for another discussion and getting you ready for Cal. But until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.